This is the Nietzsche Podcast. Welcome to the Q&A episode, as promised. It's a little late, but better late than never. Um, I don't know, I guess I had implied or at least planned on releasing this last week, but I just haven't, hadn't had time. And so, uh, you're getting it now. So, and it's a bonus episode, um, you know, just in addition to the normal, your weekly scheduled lectures. I actually had some, uh, someone asked me, I don't think it was on the Q and a thread that I'm going to be pulling questions from for this episode, but I have had somebody ask me to start a Patreon. And I don't know about that because, um, just producing an episode a week is difficult enough for me, <laughs> apparently. And uh, producing this bonus episode was very difficult, and I would have to produce all sorts of extra content if I were to start a Patreon. So um, just an answer to that question, not sure. I would have to really think about it, and it's probably just for now. You know, for now, everybody gets the bonus stuff, so, you know, enjoy. And so uh, this is from the Reddit thread, Nietzsche Podcast Update and Q&A, and I'm just going to kind of read down from the top comments to the bottom and answer all the questions therein. Um, so yeah, let's get started. The first questions are from Cool Wavy. Um, he says, my questions, uh, how did you get into Nietzsche? Hmm. So I first read Nietzsche in college, first year of college, and just in intro to philosophy. And I remember not really liking Nietzsche or really getting it. Um, I think I actually wrote an essay about how I preferred Freud's criticism of religion to Nietzsche at the time. But I did end up picking up uh, some of his books um, at a local used bookstore called Half Price Books. Because um, it seemed like there were always used Nietzsche books. Um, and <clears throat> I remember I picked up Beyond Good and Evil and didn't understand it really at all. It wasn't what I expected, and I remember I picked up the Antichrist, and it wasn't it. I I, I think I was like looking for, or, or expecting there to be, a some sort of pointed uh, attack on Christianity, on like the, of the type of like the New Atheists, right, or something like that. And I I don't think I really, even from the preface, like reading the Antichrist, I was kind of a little confused, um, as to. You know, I, I don't know. I just wasn't there yet. You know, I was like 17 at the time, 17 or 18. So what I remember where I really got into Nietzsche was down the line. So I guess that's my way of saying like, I was exposed to him just in the philosophy programs and all that. Um, but at the time, I just wasn't I wasn't as interested. But I, I was exposed to or I, I became I got into Nietzsche, so to speak, Um Years later, when I picked up Beyond Good and Evil again, and I was older, I was in my like early to mid twenties, and I, I still don't think I really had a had a um, that good of a comprehension of it, but it clicked with me a lot more. And then uh, I went on immediately to Genealogy of Morality, and uh, I, so I read both of those books on tour. So if you don't know this about me, I'm a musician, um, and I spent starting in 2012 up till 2019, after which, you know, uh, the live music world more or less shut down for coronavirus. Um, but for that time, about seven years, I was touring uh, pretty regularly, about three months a year on average. I was away from the house traveling, mostly in the U.S. Um, we did tour Europe, but um, mostly in the U.S. And um, the thing about that... <laughs> about touring in an underground band is you drive and play every single day. And so there's not a whole lot to do um, other than if you're the one behind the wheel, you're driving. If not, you're either reading or sleeping or, you know, you could like write or whatever, but mostly spent the time reading. And that was, I educated myself far more in philosophy with that time that was using that time that was allotted to me to just read books while we were um, in the van going from city to city. Um, it, and it got to the point where every tour I would bring more and more books to see how many I could get through. Um, because you can just totally devote yourself to that. You don't have any daily concerns other than driving and playing shows. 
And so, yeah, I got, in, and the, I remember I really heavily got into Nietzsche around like 2014, 2015, um, is when I kind of, I had read some of the other depressive philosophers or cynical philosophers or pessimistic philosophers like Schopenhauer and Ligotti and, um, this guy, Eugene Thacker. Um, and I had also read this book by Alan Bloom called Closing of the American Mind, where he talked a lot about Nietzsche. That's a very controversial book. Um, but, you know, aside from Alan Bloom's political opinions or whatever, um, which you may or may not agree with, he, he kind of gives this whole history of philosophy where Nietzsche plays this very critical role sort of um, in in his his criticism of Socrates and his criticism of the um, a lot of the assumptions of the philosophical project, right? He was almost like this philosopher criticizing philosophy itself. And um, so I remember I was fascinated with that. <clears throat> I was fascinated with that. And I had seen some references to Nietzsche um, just all scattered throughout and had learned that he was influenced by Schopenhauer. And so it just sort of seemed like the natural next step to really get into Nietzsche. And what I found was, um, I don't know, uh, what I found was, first and foremost, once I really got into reading him and got into his style, and I guess I'm answering now the, the second question that Cool Wavy had, this is what makes int- Nietzsche so intriguing and appealing, is I really just think it's as simple as his style. Like when I started writing his book, reading his books, um, when I was a little bit older and like a little bit more prepared for the content, um, a little bit more open to what Nietzsche was talking about as well, and a little bit more life experience under my belt. When I read him then, um, I just found his style so uh, entrancing, enchanting. Um, and it was, I think I've, I said this and maybe in an untimely reflections, but it felt like Nietzsche's sort of like beckoning you on, on an adventure with him. Um, and it was genuinely fun to read Nietzsche, unlike a lot of other phil- philosophical works, quite frankly. Um, and on top of that, that wasn't, that didn't compromise on like th- this wasn't a compromise between Nietzsche being stylistically fun and, but not having any insights or something like, so the insights felt even deeper than a lot of the other philosophy that I had read. And so, um, yeah, it basically just came from me naturally exploring philosophy because I had a, I had a, uh, lifestyle that made being an autodidact philosopher very, uh, easy and um, because I had time to read all the time, which is really what you need to do if you want to be an autodidact philosopher, it was read and write all the time. And uh, Nietzsche was intriguing and appealing to me because of his style and because um, he seems, I mean, at the end of the day, what it is, if I had to sum up what I find appealing about his ideas is that he seems to be, um, what would you say? He's unbounded by any sort of like metaphysical or moral, um, what would you call it? Like presumptions. He still comes to some positions, but um, it's he. It really does feel like he is. There's a passage in Beyond Good and Evil where he contrasts like two types of skepticism, and he says a lot of people who are skeptics today or call themselves skeptics, um, they're not actually questioning everything out of like a, a true ethos of um, subjecting every claim to um, you know the the tempering fire of of doubt. Um, it feels like Nietzsche is really, how would you put it? He's willing to go anywhere. He's willing to raise any question. He's willing to explore any issue, um, I think. And so that's, there, there you go, there's my answer. Uh, any criticisms of Nietzsche? This is another question from Cool Wavy. Hmm. I think he made Zarathustra a little too... Um, central in importance and the way he talks about it. Um, like he really was obsessed with the idea that this was this great magnum opus. Um, and really, I don't think, I think that's had a negative effect on his legacy because it's very easy to misunderstand. 
Um, it attracts people, you know, that's, it's a work of, you know, great world literature. So it attracts people, but they really often do not come prepared to actually understand the metaphors in it or understand that it's like an allegorical novel, really. And that it's in the style of the Bible. Um, and yeah, the centrality that he places on Thus Spoke Zarathustra, I think is a little bit irresponsible because it is, it is a conscious attempt to manipulate people, I think. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I've heard the stories about during World War One, soldiers had copies of Thus Spoke Zarathustra, German soldiers, in their, their packs when they're doing trench runs. Uh, maybe World War One is what he had in mind, maybe not, but um, I don't know. Um it just seems like it's he. It's a work that's ripe for being misunderstood, and Nietzsche, in his own autobiography, and Ecce Homo says, you know, it seems worried about being misunderstood, and so, um, and that's sort of another thing I could maybe criticize about him overall is his idea that um, of the mask and the idea that you you might need to make yourself person, per, uh, sorry, like purposefully obtuse from time to time are purposefully hard to understand um, so that only those who have the right to your ideas will be able to understand you. Um, I just generally don't like that kind of thing because I, I think obscuring your meaning is never a good idea. And I don't think Nietzsche generally does this, but I think it's, I think his, his way of like being intentionally vague or excusing being intentionally vague every, every once in a while. I also think that uh, his, um, he, he kind of, celebrates um the parasitism of the noble class a little bit um especially like at the end of beyond good and evil with like the sipo matador um metaphor and uh i i don't know that i i don't agree with him on that <laughs> i'll just say outright and so maybe i'm not a radical aristocracist or whatever you would call it which is what Nietzsche defined his politics as, but I think he was, um, I think he was a little stubborn on his uh, um, support of aristocracy, um, and it's kind of hard for me to get into further detail about that until you know we do future episodes on the politics of Nietzsche. Um, and so there, there you go. There are two criticisms of Nietzsche. Um, and the last question Cool Wavy asked is a little bit about myself. Well, I already kind of answered that. I'm a touring musician from Austin, Texas. Um, Self-taught, you know. Uh, and I've been active on the subreddit for quite a while. So, okay, moving on. Uh, we have Momo Man 80 who has some questions. Uh, when did you first get into Nietzsche? Any particular book or idea of his? Uh, I kind of answered that with the previous uh, commenter. Uh, basically, I, it's Beyond Good and Evil and the Genealogy of Morals that really hooked me in. I also really, really liked Birth of Tragedy when I first read it. And I think part of that was just the subject matter is generally pretty interesting to me. So actually, here's another criticism of Nietzsche. I think I think his own self-criticism of Birth of Tragedy is a little uh, is a little much. I think he was overly self-critical, and that's to be expected. All artists are overly self-critical. It's just that everyone else, um, like Walter Kaufman and all these other scholars, have taken Nietzsche's opinion and just parroted it about how, oh yeah, birth of tragedy, mostly garbage with some good. You know, it's just Wagner worship with a little bit of good ideas in there or whatever. But uh, interesting study in the development of Nietzsche's thought, but not really a good book. I think Birth of Tragedy is a perfectly fine book, and I was very entertained by it. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I don't generally go around recommending it to people until they've already read a good amount of Nietzsche, but it was, I would just say, again, the subject matter, so I was very much into ancient Greek mythology and all of that, and music and the the motivations behind why we make music and why we make art. That was all very fascinating to me when I read it. It was another thing I read when I was on tour, so it was something I was living at the time, was uh, experiencing the Apollonian. You know, you've got to be on this rigorous schedule when you're on tour. You have to make one date after the other. You have to... It requires, like, some discipline to some extent, right? But also, you're doing a show every night where you're, like, 
headbanging and losing yourself. It's supposed to be this losing your, dissolving your, um, your ego and this, and the revelry of the artistic revelry of the Dionysian dance. Right. And so the idea of those two forces coming together to produce artistic, creative, you know, being the artistic creative force was very appealing to me at the time. Um, and so that was, I might even say birth of tragedy is where I like started to really fall in love with Nietzsche, even though beyond good and evil and genealogy really hooked me in. Momo man also asks how much of Nietzsche's own life reflected his philosophy. Um, I think the, what would you say? The parts of his life about, or the parts of his work where he talks about how you should find solitude and, uh, learn to kind of be away and above from the herd and the masses so you can learn to think for yourself and develop your own and create your own values. Um, that's certainly reflected. He definitely followed, I mean, he definitely gave style to his character. Um, and if you want to know what that means, you can listen to the, the, this week's episode that came out on Tuesday. Um, you know, he found what his life was driving at, which was um, philosophy and the pursuit of wisdom in the tradition of the Greek sages and the pre-Platonics that he loved so much. Um, and so uh, I think in many respects, so he did resemble that, like the hermit, the philosopher. In some sense, it's like I've, I've talked about Nietzsche as like if Socrates is the alpha of philosophy, Nietzsche is the omega, and that he's like this sort of mirror of Socrates in many ways, that he's um, just as decadent as Socrates. And, you know, he says, well, I'm aware that I'm a decadent and I, I'm criticizing my culture and I am hastening its decline uh, through raising all these doubts and raising all these questions about our moral values and about our religious values and all these things. Um, so I think all of that, um, Nietzsche's life reflects his philosophy. I think you could make a serious case that some of the virtues and the um, signs of like having a strong will to power and being a potent soul, like being straightforward and um, honest and um, being like the, the, the incident I'm thinking of here where Nietzsche maybe didn't live up to that is when he had Paul Ray propose to Lou Salome on his behalf. Um, that he was apparently too shy to propose to the woman he he was smitten with, um, which does not seem to be um, the epitome of master morality, shall we say. But again, I think it's kind of a misunderstanding that Nietzsche was just like advocating for master morality and saying we should all live according to master morality. I don't think that's really accurate. So I would say his life mostly reflected his philosophy. It's just that, um, you know... I think Nietzsche was was aware that even he himself as a scholarly, academic, um, philosopher type and a hermit <laughs> type person um, was necessarily, when he's talking about all of these barbaric inclinations in mankind and our natural capacity for savagery and brutality, that he, just as much as everyone else of his era, is very... Um, in terms of our daily like life and our way of life, very removed from that. And I don't think, I don't think he was like in denial about the fact that he was very removed from like man's life, man's natural way of life in the state of nature. But I don't think that makes it any less valid for him to point out that we're, we're living in a way that is anti-natural in many respects. Uh, Momo Man also asks, do you have any go-to secondary literature about this book Zarathustra or Beyond Good and Evil? Please, no post-structuralists, dude. Yeah, I don't like post-structuralism. Actually, I will say Deleuze, like I have a book of his writings on Nietzsche, and I may do an episode or two on that in the future. I'm not sure when I'm going to get into like, so I, I'm definitely talking, I, I plan on covering a huge variety of Nietzsche's influences, but I don't know when I'm going to get to people he influenced. And once you do that, I feel like that'll be like later in the podcast, I can talk about people influenced by Nietzsche and then I might talk about Deleuze. 
um, which I'm not sure if he qualifies as a post-structuralist. Um, I'm pretty sure he's definitely a postmodernist, though, right? I don't know. I hate all these terms. Um, but he talks a lot about, like, Beyond Good and Evil and stuff, and this book Zarathustra in there. Um, other than that, I mean, Walter Kaufman um, is who I go to a lot for secondary literature. Um, there's also... I mean, there's just all sorts of, there's all sorts of sources, honestly, but there's nothing really that stands out. And I would also say that Jung's, uh, Jung's, um, like analysis of this book, Zarathustra, I don't think is, how would I put it? It's not bad. It's just, it's more about Jung's ideas than it is about Nietzsche's. I'll just leave it there. And I, and I would say that the same is true of Deleuze. Um, we're getting more of, pouring in Nietzsche into the Deleuze like Deleuze shaped vessel and see what you get you know and of course it resembles Deleuze um and so I that's what I find oftentimes with secondary literature about Nietzsche is that it's oftentimes just a um it's an excuse for somebody to um use Nietzsche to peddle their own ideas if that makes sense but um that being said robert solomon you know robert solomon that's somebody i'll recommend um both him and walter kaufman um i would just say check out their materials generally i don't know anything about like specifically about this book zarathustra beyond good and evil but they definitely talk about both of those books extensively because they're central to like nietzsche's thought so um, those are like the authors I recommend. Um, what do you think of book four of Zarathustra? It's very divisive. It, is it? Um, I'll have to look into why it's divisive. Um, I guess I remember reading something about that. Uh, I like book four. I guess it's like, why is it divisive? Because it's like, it's like overly symbolic and really like contrived a lot of the imagery and stuff, maybe. And you have to like interpret and decode a lot more, I feel like, than the earlier books. Um, is that maybe why? Um, I don't know. I mean, I like it. <laughs> I think book one of Zarathustra is the strongest and, uh, it, like book four is probably the weakest, but they're all really good. So, um, I don't know. Once you've, once you've made it through three books of Zarathustra, you might as well finish it, even though it, four didn't come out until later. So like, uh, Okay. Pitches for possible episodes if you're ever hard for ideas. Going Under, Revenge, Zarathustra's Animals. Ooh. Uh, Nietzsche and Wilde or Emerson. Hmm. Okay. And Nietzsche and Film. So these are all his suggestions. I am... Uh, there will be something with Film that is going to make its way into a future episode. Um, probably sooner than later, actually. Okay. Um, let's see here. Going on to the next comment. Okay, it actually was here. It was Montague89 who said, get a Patreon so we can donate. Um, and I kind of answered that at the beginning. Um, he also said, I would love for you to make another episode explaining Fritz's love for Heraclitus. Um, hmm. I don't know if I will do another episode on Heraclitus for a while. But um, I don't know. It's possible. It's possible. Um moving on to another question um are there any of these on beyond, about beyond good and evil specifically it comes from Drophit. uh no not yet but maybe in the future i did say i think in the first episode i might eventually go through some of these texts like on it and make like episodes that are a deep dive um you know so where i would just do a series where i'm just talking about beyond good and evil and taking it like chapter by chapter um, that's entirely possible, but I actually want to do that. This is the kind of thing that I'll probably do later in the podcast because I'm trying to keep to the format of trying to bridge the knowledge and talk about this, talk about the concepts, talk about the ideas, talk about the development of Nietzsche's thought, talk about specific problems, specific questions, and, um, engage with Nietzsche's philosophy that way, because I feel like that's not done enough in online philosophical spaces. You either, when people do do that and they're just talking about a big concept in someone's philosophy, usually they end up saying the same thing as everyone else about it. So how many videos have you seen on YouTube 
philosophy talking about uh, eternal recurrence. And they read the same thing from the same aphorism, The Greatest Weight, about eternal recurrence. When I do an episode about eternal recurrence, I'm going to have to read the same goddamn aphorism. Um, but, <laughs> uh, and it'll, it'll, I'll try and make it fun, but you see what I'm saying, right? Like the, the big ideas of Nietzsche, Nietzsche's, um, you often just get like the same sort of discussion about the same concepts over and over again, or, um, you know, so yeah, I, like, I, I don't know. I didn't necessarily want to just, uh, take it section by section going into the text. Cause I feel like there's so much there in his volume of work that um, so many ideas that are are made they they you bring the whole thing into the you bring the whole thing into the light by examining all these different angles and all these different considerations from different angles and different perspectives that Nietzsche had throughout his career um, rather than I don't know I feel like you get more out of that than just like um, discussing it. Cause I think the other thing too, people can just go read the books <laughs> is the other thing. <laughs> that being said, I know people like having a buddy to read the book with, so to speak, or to, to hear someone talk about something that they've just read and that can help them process it and all that, this, that, and the other. So, um, even though I want to, I guess this is my long winded way of saying, I want to get across all the big concepts by just sort of looking at how they appear across this whole body of work. And then maybe pinpointing on like little constituent ideas here and there. And then as we kind of flesh out all of Nietzsche's philosophy, then I might go back and, you know, go through the books. Um, okay, Lebensmaler, one of the best contributors on the subreddit. He has a single question, which aphorism by Nietzsche shook or shattered your once Buddhist inclinations and why? Okay, so I've mentioned a couple times that I've like had a, a background in Buddhism, um, specifically in Zen Buddhism, which is something I um, was very interested in for about four or five years. And um, the answer, so this is actually might be a little bit of a long answer because um, I'm probably not going to actually answer the actual question because well, I mean, I will answer it is that it, I don't think there was an aphorism that shook or shattered my Buddhist inclinations. And, and as you may have gathered from everything I've been talking about, I was exposed to Nietzsche and his ideas before I even became interested in Buddhism. And at one point thought, or would have said, I'm a Buddhist, I've converted to Buddhism. Um, and so how could that be? Well, it's, you know, I find that life is a and our journey, our intellectual journey through life is more of a spiral pattern than anything else. Sometimes you revisit the same places, but when you come back, you have a renewed understanding that it's not just a circle, right? Um, that you're not just, uh, um, just spinning your wheels. It's like, okay, I left, I was in this kind of what would you call it? Cynical, critical, pseudo Nietzschean headspace where I was very, what would you say? I was very, I was, I was concerned with the end of philosophy, the end of knowledge, the finding the edges of where rationality could lead me. And I kind of felt like I had gotten there and that, um, the only way to pursue more knowledge at this point was through mysticism or something of the like. And, um, I, I feel like maybe <laughs> some, some number of people listening to this will understand that. And some number will not know what the fuck I'm talking about, but, um, a lot of mystics throughout the years, even from hundreds of years ago were philosophers. Um, and then they, they sort of come to this realization about the limits of human knowledge and they want to go beyond that. And so I'm talking about people like Meister Eckhart. Um, and I don't know. So that was kind of, that was the headspace that I was in when I found Buddhism. And actually first I got interested in Taoism. And then it was specifically Zen that really interested me. 
um, coming off of Taoism. And so again, I, I, I practiced that for like four or five years, um, probably somewhere in between four and five years. And um, the reason why I came out on the other side of it, um, I, I don't know if I can really give a good explanation other than something Matt said on the last Untimely Reflections, like saying that getting over liberalism was like getting over a long illness. I almost feel like Buddhism is like a long illness because it was, it was almost like, okay, I need to experiment with what is beyond the limits of human knowledge. And then after Buddhism for five years, it was like, all right, I've experimented with that. That was a dead end, right? So to speak. See, but I don't want to call it a dead end because it's still the understanding that I had when I arrived back at Nietzsche. And it was sort of almost like Nietzsche was waiting for me when I was, he was, he was on the main path, still on his way up, up into the mountains, into the heavens, into the, 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 the cloudy mountains above everything. He waited for me on the path. It was like, oh, you're back from your little, little excursion you had to do into Buddhist land, friend. All right, come on, let's keep going. You know, I just jumped right back into Nietzsche and, um, had so much of a deeper, personal, more intimate understanding of how it is that Nietzsche could have been enamored with Schopenhauer and then learned to overcome Schopenhauer. Um, because I feel like I had a very similar experience. And it it is the the knowledge. I think at the end of the day, I, again, it wasn't really an aphorism, but I think I, I, I maybe couldn't have articulated this at the time, but what was really happening is I came to perceive how the the whole Buddhist value system was <laughs> effectively just a rejection of everything that it means to be human. And, um, you know, I, I'm not trying to say any of this to, like, rile up the Buddhists or attack Buddhism or whatever. Um, when I do attack Buddhism, you'll know, I'll make an... I'll, I could even make a whole episode of Nietzsche going after Buddhism, using Nietzsche to attack Buddhist ideas, but that's not really what I'm doing here. I'm just explaining my own, um, my own inner workings and my own thought process. I basically realized, okay, um, the rejection of my desires, the rejection of my craving, what is that really? Um, you know, because Buddhism is not, the thing about Nietzsche is that it's not, he's not saying that we should embrace our passions from this like blind, wild hedonism. It is still this, there is still this call in Nietzsche to cultivate discipline and become the master of your passions and all of these things. But in Buddhism, I mean, passion is a, it's one of the defilements. It's one of the things that is keeping you from seeing your true nature, from enlightenment. It's keeping you incarnating in this world of suffering. And I don't know. I just think it's impossible to simultaneously believe that and to believe that this life is valuable and worth living if your entire goal is to achieve the ability to stop incarnating into this world. <laughs> and I think a lot of it was just life experience, too, that I I did have those those moments that, you know, maybe if I had to, okay, I actually lied because maybe this is the aphorism because I do remember thinking about this specifically is that phrase in Zarathustra, have you ever said yes to a single joy where it's like, I've had, I had had those moments where I had just already decided if, um, you know, this, this, these moments have made my life all worth it. And, um, no matter what else happens, and so um, how, could I, how could I make it my goal to never, if I, if I was endlessly being reincarnated to experience all these different sorts of lives and perspectives in this world, right, which is the Buddhist cosmology, why would I want to be liberated from that? Um, and so I chose samsara, basically. Like I, I um, realized that the, the whole Buddhist orientation of life just... Um, it was backwards that uh, all of the things that make me me, I wanted to embrace that. I wanted to affirm this life and affirm life in general. 
And I didn't want to live a life where it was basically throwing it all away, right? It's like, I'm going to flatten my my emotions. I'm going to uh, be as indifferent to everything as I possibly can. I mean, that's like the ultimate goal. That's what it is to be an arhat um, or a sage, is to be completely um, unmoved by any of the you know, forces of, uh, your karmic, your karmic, uh, energy, your karmic momentum, uh, forcing you to continue chasing after your desires. You're able to release and let go of all that. Right. And so I just decided that pursuing a life of indifference and a life of desirelessness, that is throwing your life away. And, um, this came with a sort of uh, metaphysical, almost like axiomatic. See, if I was a religious person, I'd say it was like a revelation or an epiphany. I don't think it was that. I think it was just me having a shift and thinking about things. But I definitely had the thought that um, if there is some divine plan and I've been incarnated into this world or what have you, I mean, whatever it is, I think my my intuition or my deep... I don't even want to call it intuition. I just have this deep feeling that um, there, I'm here. If I if I was put here, then I am here to be here, right? I, if I was incarnated as a living being, then I'm here to live my life. That the point of my life is to live it, not to invest. Um, you know, that that was that's basically the realization that the point of my life can never be. Um, some goal that is beyond this life. Um, and that if there is some sort of higher power, it doesn't make sense to me that I'd be put here. Um, and th- But that this life would have, I would be incarnated into a world that has no value. Right? Um, so I don't know. I just I just rejected all those ideas of this world beyond or this world as a test or as a training ground to learn how to become indifferent and and gain annihilation, gain deincarnation, basically, <laughs> um, from, you know, from this world. And so, I don't know, I hope that that answers your question. It was just, uh, it was more life experience and getting older and uh, recognizing, I think, Buddhism for what it was, and then coming back to Nietzsche more than anything, and saying yes, saying yes to a single joy. Okay, um, last comment with questions. Um, and this one is very speci- some very specific questions from Kilgara. First question is to episode 11. Why is it that we need slave morality? Why can't we just have master morality? Um, because we can't, Because <laughs> is the short answer. Uh, the reason is that slave morality is part of us. Um, I know I already said this in the episode, so I hope I'm not just like repeating ourselves or repeating myself, but, um, we don't have a choice. We can't just decide that slave morality is no longer part of our psyche or part of our heart. Um, just like you can't decide, um, that you can't, you can't just choose to get rid of all those moral assumptions that you're raised with as part of a Christian a society that is descended of Christian values, right? Um, we all have these values to some extent, um, just because of the society we're raised in. Um, and so there's just that angle of it. If you're saying, well, why wouldn't it be desirable to get rid of slave morality entirely and just have the master morality? Um, and I don't know, to that, I guess I would say, um, I, as Nietzsche himself has said, we have benefited from the slave morality in some ways um that it's the combination the interaction between the master and the slave morality produces the higher type of the priest and as i just talked about in the episode that came out on tuesday the priest and his ascetic values as unhealthy as they were um did um did improve mankind, quote unquote, insofar as it elevated man and cultivated our ability to use reason and our ability for self-reflection and our ability for discipline and all these things. And so 
there is, we shouldn't, I guess I would just say, be careful what you wish for, because um, it's very hard to, it's very, I think it's a very hard argument to say that certain parts of, uh, of our deeply held values and cultural assumptions, like to decide some of them should be done away with and, and to, to not, um, it's, it's very hard to do that without collateral damage or without unintended consequences, I would just say. Um, and he also asks, how is the different morals connected to the higher man and the last man? Um, and I, Okay, so if by higher man you mean like the ubermensch, like the superman, because the superman is usually contrasted with the last man. Um, I mean, yeah, there, there's definitely the last man is sort of like the apotheosis of slave morality. And you could maybe say the, the ubermensch is the, the apotheosis of master morality, right? I would, even, I would even accept that. And so maybe that's where your question is coming from, is like, why Why wouldn't it be a good thing to just have purely master morality? Isn't that what the ubermensch is? And I don't know. I would just say it's pro. I think the issue there more than anything is that the overman is, I think, has to be a an ideal for the future and something that we do not... Um, like, we can't say that the the um that we ourselves who are have these moral this modern moral code that is made up of both the master and the slave morality that we're the ones who are going to decide what a purely master morality being would be like does that make sense that the the overman i don't think is going to i actually take back what i said i don't think the overman is necessarily going to absolutely embody the master morality in the sense that the master morality in many respects is just Nietzsche talking about like the ancient Greek morality, right? And so the overman is going to be something entirely new. And actually that the last man, what's so contemptible about the last man is that he wants to just preserve things the way they are. The last man is the like representative of comfort and contentment and self-preservation and the will to live, the will to exist as like the highest value. So the last man is basically like, in many respects, the perfection of like a lot of the moral theories of Nietzsche's own time, of utilitarians, of Kantians, even though these are all different and opposed moralities, right? They all are based on this idea, on these ideas of, you know, um, pity and compassion and self-preservation and and creating contentment and well-being. And um, so, I don't know, I guess what I'm saying is the, the, the thing that the overman will represent in terms of morality will be uh, something completely beyond morality. It'll be an extra moral age. It will not really be the master morality or the slave morality um, per se. And maybe that's a, maybe that seems like a cop-out, but um, we'll get it. We'll get into it more when I do an episode on the on the Overman. Um, in episode nine, you talked about using the different drives instead of rejecting them. How and why would we apply something like resentment? Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit more about how Nietzsche uses the word resentment as he did in episode six. Um, so, how would we apply something like resentment? I don't know that resentment has too many applications, right? Um, the thing is that resentment is like a poison in Nietzsche's view. Um, it's something that, that builds up in you from being in a state of weakness that is not good for you. And so maybe you're asking how, would, how do we like deal with something like resentment? Um, and I think that's where, what is it Nietzsche says, medical kit of the soul, the strongest, what is the strongest healing application is victory. Um, so, you know, having some means of discharging your resentment through actually acquiring power or feeling powerful or defeating an enemy, maybe. But then on the other hand, um, people who are resentful when they acquire power um, often spread and create more resentment because they tend to use their power in a weak way, <laughs> in a way that is spiteful and vindictive. Um, and so... 
I don't know. It's very hard if we take if we take the idea of resentment and the way Nietzsche presented it. It is pretty much something he thinks we should reject. Um, but then, yeah, I guess the question remains. It's like if somebody is full of resentment, how do they deal with that or discharge that? And it might be that the resentment has to be sublimated in some way. And it also might be the case, again, that this might be another reason why we can say the slave morality had its use, right? Because giving people that imaginary revenge at least meant they didn't take revenge in real life um, and destabilize all of society. That's what, you know, that's, it's, it's still the slave revolt in morality as Nietzsche talks about it, but it's um, the imaginary revenge of hell and the book of Revelation and all of that and the afterlife. That is like a masterstroke of managing the psyche of the community on the part of the priest. And it's pure slave morality. But it, like, that was a function of Christianity, was discharging that resentment. Right? I mean, that, so, there you have it. I mean, so this kind of, I feel like I kind of floundered on the last question, but I feel like this really helps to answer it, of, like, what, that there was, there is a usefulness to slave morality and master morality, and, but that on some level, those are both, the pure forms of those are, they should only be understood as origins because going back to them is not possible. Um, going back to those in a pure form, not possible. Okay, uh, and third question, the Christian moral, the creative act out of resentment, is that the will to power expressing itself in a, quote, bad way? What is the will to power used in a good way, according to Nietzsche? Um, this is actually a very simple answer. Yes, it's, well, so it's expressing itself in an unhealthy way. And it's unhealthy because it's self-defeating. Because um, the the nurturing, the creative act out of resentment. Um, so, for example, the creation of hell for the imagined punishment of enemies. Um, this does not, um, how would you put it? This doesn't, this, this serves as a means of dealing with discharging the resentfulness or the vindictiveness. But on another level, that introduces that introduces this uh, sense of guilt into mankind, and the sense of self-recrimination, self-repudiation, the sense of uh, being fearful of one's own bad conscience. Um, that's part of the effect of that discharge of resentment. Is um, so, it's will to power used in a way to create this um, moral structure that lives in people's heads that fills them with like guilt and self-recrimination. And so that is the part, the aspect of it that is unhealthy and will actually, the reason why it's bad is because it's weakening in some ways. So it's dealing with one set of issues, but it's undermining itself in another respect. And so the will to power used in a bad way, as you put it, is when it's unhealthy or self-undermining. When the will to power manifests in a good way, that's when it is self-enhancing and... Um, harmonious, not self-undermining. Uh, and last, in episode nine, you talked about the self being a multiplicity of our drives. You then quoted an aphorism from the dawn with focus on this gardener being able to chop down some drives and give life to others. My question here is, is consciousness this gardener or is consciousness just the result of our drives competing? Um, huh. On some level, you could say consciousness is just the result of the drives competing. That would be a, like a fair... Um, assessment, because you could say that consciousness, conscious awareness goes where there is some sort of advantage or survivability or something gained by perceiving in that area, right? Um, so we perceive the things, we we perceive where our will to power leads. Um, but in another respect, so, so that's the thing. So the individual, yeah, it is actually kind of a... Uh, misleading analogy because the gardener you might think of the gardener as this unitary individual whereas consciousness or the really just the self the the individual human self is made up of all these constituent drives that are not just a unity um but yeah i mean on another in another respect reason is this organizing force for the will to power now nietzsche is careful to say reason is not the, it doesn't determine the ends, doesn't determine the goals. It can't, 
it doesn't, uh, our impulses don't come from reason and reason doesn't, um, reason doesn't dominate the impulses. What does happen is one impulse can overcome another impulse and reason can kind of, um, it serves as this means as a mediating force between the impulses. It's a means that the strongest impulses use in order to order the self, so to speak. And um, that's, that's the extent to which conscious awareness plays a role in being the gardener of the self. Is, um, it's the, that is the manifestation of reason as the instrument of one's strong drives being used to order and harmonize the self. Okay, I hope I didn't ramble too much. Um, I did this whole episode all off the cuff, just trying to um, answer these in one go. So hopefully, um, you know, listening to me think in real time on some of these um, will not be too uh, difficult for <laughs> you all to listen to. And if you've made it this far in the episode, then uh, I suppose it was. Alrighty, everybody. Um, uh, next week. Um, I, you know, actually as of recording this, I don't think I've even decided what I'm going to do next week. I have several different ideas for episodes. Um, but, uh, I haven't, I haven't chosen yet what I'm going to write a script for. So I guess we'll see. Anyway, uh, thank you for listening. And, uh, this, I mean, this one's for you guys. This is your Q and A. So maybe if, uh, if this gets a good response and people like this, I'll do another one in the future. And if I do ever start a Patreon, um, Mr. Montague 89, uh, I will certainly consider making the Q and A's a special thing for patrons or something like, so, uh, we'll see. All right. Goodbye, everybody.